Our scripture lesson today is from Genesis. Pretty simple to find. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And so it was. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with the living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. pray. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, that you would teach us about yourself from it, that you would reveal yourself to us as sinners as we sit under it, and that you would be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> 
So, a word of explanation about what we're doing here. We just finished preaching through the book of Exodus last week, and in a few weeks we're going to start preaching through another whole book of the Bible. Just in case you're wondering, we are not preaching through the whole book of Genesis. That's not why we're touching on Genesis 1. But, I was thinking about what to do for these few weeks before kind of fall starts and school starts, and we have kind of the regular (laughs) attendance patterns again that we have in the fall to start the next series. And I was thinking about this seminary professor I had who probably like five times every lecture would find the excuse to use the same phrase or in answering questions or whatever, he would always just be like, context is king. That's the thing that he would always say. And that is true in a real sense, that context, that what comes around something and especially before something is really, it's king. It's key to understanding that thing. That's true of human speech, right? I mean, like, there are times that, say, a child might say, but you said that we could have dessert, and my response is, but I said, if you eat your dinner just before that, and that, you know, that affects what that means, or I remember I was reading a book review a little while back, um, a very negative review, and he had these really, like, troubling quotes from the book, and I had read the book, and I remember just thinking, I do not think the author said that. And so I looked up the worst quote, and the sentence before what he quoted was the sentence, now some people might erroneously hold the following view. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it happens in the Bible, right? Context is king, not just in our normal communications, but it's key in the Bible. We have a tendency in the first place to often approach the Bible on the level of verses, And Bible verses are great, but the Bible was not divided up that way originally. That's just a way that we added to help us follow through Scripture. It was written as books. And so if you read a Bible verse without looking at the verses around it, obviously you've missed the context. And it's key in a bigger way in Scripture as well, which is to say that the Bible tells a story. It's this unfolding story of God's work in human history. And we need the context of the rest of the Bible to really make sense of what we're reading. And that is why we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in these first two chapters in Genesis. Because in many ways, these two chapters provide the first piece of context for the entire biblical story. If we don't appreciate some of the truths that they contain, there's things we'll misunderstand about the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start looking here at Genesis 1. And we're really given three essential truths from this text, which are that God made everything, that he made it by his word, and that it's all very good. And we're going to get to those truths in a couple of minutes. But this text is also kind of different than many, in that I know before we dive into it and talk about what it teaches us and how to live out of it and believe out of it, a number of us have other questions about Genesis chapter 1, about science and history and all of that stuff. And so what we're going to do this morning is this. In a few minutes, we will shift into what we would normally do in a sermon and talk about those things that it teaches us. But first, I just want to spend a little while talking about those other questions, because I get asked them a lot. Every time, every year I do this Ask Me Anything time with the youth, and they ask all kinds of questions, but the one question they always ask is, what about the dinosaurs? And so, right, I know these are the kinds of things some of us wonder about. So we're going to talk about that. And I just say that up front to note that some of you will really be interested in that discussion, and others of us probably less so. And both of those ways are fine, right? It's fine to be either one. 
but just know if this is not the thing that you really have questions about, that in a few minutes we'll shift to talking about the other stuff. With that said, Genesis 1, as it relates to science and history and the age of the earth and evolution and all of that stuff, how do we think about this text? And right up front, here's the most important thing that we need to understand, which is that Christians disagree about how to think about Genesis 1. There are different views that are held by Bible-believing Christians that love Jesus and are trying to be faithful to his word. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. That does not mean that you should not discuss this. That does not mean you shouldn't have opinions on this. But it does mean that you need to hold those opinions graciously and humbly, right? Because there are people who, in good faith, trying to obey Jesus, disagree. But that said, here's what we're going to do. First, I'll tell you kind of the two opinions, the two views. And then I will um, tell you what I think, even though Christians can hold both things. And then I'll try to answer a couple of the specific questions that some of us have. But first of all, here are the two views for understanding Genesis 1. I'm going to call them the young earth view and the indeterminate age view. And I know that second one's kind of a mouthful, but just bear with me. First of all, there's the young earth view. So some Christians hold the position that one of the things that Jesus, that Genesis 1 means to teach us is about the age of the earth. That one of the things that it is trying to teach is that God created everything in six 24-hour days, from the beginning of things to humanity, in six 24-hour days, probably about 6,000 years ago. Now, actually, that 6,000 years is not about Genesis. That's about the genealogies in the Bible, but that's the young earth view. Um, but that's kind of the core argument of that. And then the indeterminate age view is really just the position that argues that Genesis 1 is not setting out to teach us about that. So some people call that like young earth and old earth view, but that's not really correct because the second view isn't just, just isn't commenting on the age of the earth, if that makes sense. They think that it's teaching a bunch of other stuff, that God created everything, but that the structure of Genesis 1 is there for some other reason. Usually they would say it's because Moses, um, who wrote Genesis, he received it, you know, in this kind of way from God that he would have to understand, and that since Moses wasn't there at the creation, and no human being was there until the end of the creation, that this is a way of God revealing to Moses the reality that he made everything. Now, both sides of that, people who hold both views tend to hold them very strongly, <laughs> like we already kind of said. Um, the young earth people tend to accuse the old earth people of compromising scripture. The old earth people tend to accuse the young earth people of being more interested in modern scientific debates than in being good students of the Bible. And the big thing first to say about that is, again, Christians hold both of those views, trying to be faithful to Jesus, loving him, trying to be faithful to the Bible, right? So it is important, regardless of which of those views you adopt, to be respectful and generous to others. Um, that said, um, I know when you're a pastor that lots of people want to know your view, and I will tell you what I think and why I believe it briefly, but I do that within that context, right? Here this is me doing that within acknowledging that there's that diversity and I want to respect it. All right. So, um, I hold to the indeterminate age view. I hold to the second of those options. And I'll just give you two reasons I think that is the right way to read Genesis 1. The first reason is Genesis 1. Um, so there's a number of features of Genesis 1 
that don't really make sense if it's a chronological account of six 24-hour days. The biggest one is that God makes light and darkness on day one and doesn't make the sun and stuff until day four, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. In fact, it's kind of hard to understand what a 24-hour day is for the first three days when there is no sun for the earth to rotate around or stars or other heavenly bodies. Um, And um, it also makes sense of some other features of the text, like the way that animals get sorted out, that there's a lot of questions of like, well, where do like amphibians fit into that taxonomy? But because of Genesis 1, um, I think it makes a lot more sense to see that structure of six days as a way of communicating the scope of creation. On the first three days, God makes all the space. He makes the heavens and the earth and time and dry land, all of that. And then on the latter three days, he fills them with all the things that inhabit them. I think that's a much better way to read it. And then a second reason I don't think it's speaking to the age of the earth is Genesis 2. Um, So Genesis 2, which we will get to in some future sermons, um, it has to be an accounting of what happens on the sixth day, whatever that means, because it starts with the creation of Adam and ends with the creation of Eve. And since male and female are created on the sixth day, all of its events have to happen on the sixth day. And in Genesis 2, what happens is that God creates Adam out of the dirt of the wilderness— It says he plants the Garden of Eden and grows it up, and then he brings Adam from the wilderness into the Garden of Eden to work it. Adam begins to work the Garden of Eden. It becomes apparent that it is not good for him to work it alone. God brings each of the animals to Adam, and Adam names each of them and tests each of them, and each of them is found to be an unsuitable helpmate, and then ultimately Adam is put into a deep sleep, and he's created this companion in Eve. And that does not sound like a 24-hour set of events, um, or a 12-hour set of events, really, if it's between morning and evening. Now, that said, while those are reasons that I think that it's better to view Genesis 1 as not being interested in that, Christians disagree, and it is good for us to hold those disagreements. So I would be happy to discuss that with you if you have questions, and I think it is important for us at Kish to preserve the sense that both views— Um, are worthy of respect, and that we should allow people to have. All right. We'll move on in just a minute, but first let me just answer a couple of the specific questions then that people ask coming out of Genesis 1. First of all, what do you think of the age of the earth and things like geological layers? And, you know, we were at the Grand Canyon a few months ago, and you see those rock layers and stuff. Um, If you hold the indeterminate age view, it just kind of doesn't matter. If you hold the young earth view, there's sort of two options that you have. Um, One is what people call apparent age, which is the idea that the earth is 6,000 years old, but God made it look millions and millions of years old. Um, And that view sounds interesting, but I'm—you probably shouldn't hold it, because it almost always ends up being that, like, God buried the dinosaur bones in the ground to fool the scientists. Um— the other view, and probably the more, ma- the more common view, is what's called catastrophic geology, right? If you're a young earth person, the way you would understand those things as basically being caused by Noah's flood, that that was such a cataclysmic, unusual event that it would have caused all of that to happen. All right. Second question, what do we as Christians believe about evolution as we think about Genesis 1? And that's where we need to define our terms really carefully because there's at least two things you can mean by evolution, and we tend to get them confused. So on one level, um, evolution can just mean that animals change over time because of mutation and natural selection. 
And really, no Christians have issues with evolution in that view. Um, I mean, in fact, even young Earth creationists will generally be fine with that idea to some extent. It's just, if you've got 6,000 years, there's not a lot of time for that to happen. But um, absolutely, you can look at bacteria under a microscope, see them grow and change under time. No one, um, scripture would have no issue with that view, you know, of just creatures changing over time. The other sense of evolution is the idea that everything evolved from nothing without any involvement of God, only by chance and natural selection. And no Christian would accept that view, um, really for two reasons. One is just because the idea that God isn't involved in what happens in the world is problematic. Usually people who hold that have this idea that there's natural stuff, and then there's stuff that God does, and they separate those two things out in the world. And that just isn't the case, right? God is in his providence and control of everything that comes to pass. He's at work in the world through all things. So in that sense, you would reject that second idea of evolution. And then also, Christians generally don't feel compelled at all to need to feel like everything evolved from nothing simply because um, we have other ways that stuff can happen too. The main reason that you have an insistence that there's nothing else that happened is because you've already predecided that God can't be active and there's no supernatural involvement in the world. And if you predecide that, then you do need evolution to account for everything. But all of us as Christians have other ways that things could happen, so we're not really obliged to hold that. All right, one last question then. Uh, what about dinosaurs? Because like I said, that's the one everyone asks. And um, if you hold the indeterminate age view, then, um, well, if you hold the young earth view first, dinosaurs either died in the flood or sometime before or after that. If you hold the indeterminate age view, then Genesis doesn't really speak to it, other than to say that whenever and whatever was going on with dinosaurs, God made them by his word, and he made them very good, which any seven-year-old can tell you. So, all right. Let me just say one last thing about that, and then we'll switch to talking about what this teaches us in terms of our theology. Um, part of why I felt like it would be worth taking the time to walk through all of that this morning is because um, regardless of your views on this issue, regardless of how you feel about all of this, science is good and awesome, and Christians need to just appreciate how awesome it is. <laughs> I realize this is the nerd in me coming out a little bit. But there's this idea in our culture, both, both in Christian and secular circles, that like faith and science are somehow at odds with each other and they're enemies. And too many Christians have this suspicion of studying the world and doing science and stuff like that. And that is just tragic, right? God made this world and he invites us to learn about and study it. And so it is good for us to do that. While absolutely there are some people who are scientists who come up with some ideas that we as Christians might disagree with, that does not mean that science is not great. And especially if you are a young person in here, right? Like, science is awesome. My kids, yeah, you know, it's great. All right. With that said, now let's shift and talk about what this text is trying to teach us bigger picture about God. And like we said, there's three things that Genesis 1 would set out to teach. And the first is that God made everything. <laughs> this is probably going to sound basic, but it needs to be where we start. God made everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right up front, God makes the heavens and the earth, which is the Bible's way of saying all the stuff on the planet and also all the stuff not on the planet, right? It's inclusive. God makes everything. 
In fact, Genesis 1 really aims to stress the, the wholeness of God's creation. And it's doing that because it's trying to stress God's dominion. It's teaching that God, as the creator of everything, has rights to everything and is its king. Let me show you what I mean by that. I mentioned this, actually, a couple minutes ago. But this is actually the structure of Genesis 1. And regardless of whether the views are chronological, too, you can notice that there's this structure where the first three days sort of cover all the areas of creation, right? So there's the day and the night, there's the sky and the sea, then there's the dry land that God creates, all these different areas. And then the latter three days, God fills each of those areas. That's actually, he kind of, it kind of pictures the sun and moon and stars, right, as the inhabitants of the day and night, and then the, the birds and sea creatures, and then the animals of the dry land. And the reason that it divides it up like that is because something like that chart would be the way that most ancient civilizations would divide things between different gods. I don't know if you're familiar with Greek or Roman mythology or other mythology, but what you find is you have gods over different areas, right? The god of the sky and the god of the sea and the god of, you know, different, like, geographical regions, the day and night. And then you have gods of, like, the moon or associated with certain animals. And they tend to t tell these creation stories where different gods make different parts of things. And so part of what Genesis 1 is trying to just stress is, like, no, God made all of it, right? Like, there's no room to divide out stuff for other gods. There's no room for other forces in the universe to be at work. The Lord is the one who created everything. Um, it also props that idea of God creating and therefore having dominion over everything by the fact that it has God name things. So like in verse 5, it says that God called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So God makes it, and then he names it, which is another way of reinforcing, I own this. I have dominion over this. This is mine. So that's the first truth this text tries to teach. And how should that affect us? How should that change how we live? Well, let me just suggest two things that does. First, that should just lend a lie to our false gods and the ways that we tend to treat things in this world as having ultimate dominion. We have this enormous confidence in our day in what we achieve, right? So we don't have false gods in maybe the same way that the ancient world does and that we don't call them like, like Pluto or Venus or whatever, but, you know, but still we worship, right? Our, you know, our money and our, you know, our image and our attractiveness, our strength, our ability to, to work in the world. We tend to worship ourselves and our capacities. And part of what Genesis 1 would want to stress to us is that while we as human beings do have power and ability to work in the world, all of that is still under the dominion of God. In the world that Genesis sets up, it's kind of like this. First, just imagine in our world, like let's say you went and studied with some master craftsman, right? You went and some sculptor or carpenter or something, and you knew nothing about it, and you go, first you study with them and learn their skills, they teach you that, and then they take you into their workshop, and they give you their tools, and they give you some materials of theirs, and they turn you loose to, you know, to craft this thing. Already in that kind of story, you would recognize that if you got done with that sculpture and you were like, man, look at this, I am awesome, right? We would already recognize that there's something wrong with that, that you're failing to recognize it. And if you layered on top of that story that this master craftsman also like created your body and created your mind to learn the skills, 
then we would begin to approach what Scripture wants to picture, which is to say that we as human beings do lots of stuff. We build big buildings and invent cool stuff and, um, and do all kinds of things, but all of that is still simply using the potential and capacities that God has already placed in the world. That all of our achievements are still within the dominion of God, and he still deserves glory for them. So that's one way this challenges and teaches us. And then coming out of that, we should also be reminded that therefore everything we have belongs to God. That if that's true, that everything we have comes from God, then everything we have also belongs to him. The, you'll sometimes hear, if you've been around the church, people use the word stewardship to describe this idea. Um, and that's stewardship. A steward is somebody who essentially manages something that belongs to someone else. So in our world, like, if you're, like, a real estate property manager, right, you don't own these buildings, but you're kind of managing them. Or if you're, like, the nanny for someone's kids, you're a steward for their kids. And scripture would view all of creation as something that we are stewards of, which is to say we as human beings, again, are involved and active in creation, but that everything we have belongs to God. And so the thing that we have to be thinking about is whether we are managing it in the ways that he would command us to. Now, there are obvious areas that stewardship applies, and if you're around the church, you'll hear it used to discuss that. Like, money is the big one, right? People would talk about stewardship in terms of our finances, and that's appropriate because those resources are given to us by God, and we're called to um, be good stewards of them. You'll also sometimes hear churches use it to talk about things like talents or the environment. And again, those are both good ways to talk about stewardship, right? They're things that belong to God, and we ought to manage and care for them for his glory. But really, we're stewards of everything, and that means we need to be thinking about it in other areas, too. Let me just name two of them that I found myself thinking about this week. One was our children. Uh, not all of us have kids, but... Um, for those of us that do, one of the things that I often need to remind myself of is that my children are God's, ultimately. That he has given them to me to manage for his glory, but that, um, that if I use them to serve myself, right, to just make myself feel good or puff myself up, that's actually sin. And that I have a responsibility to help them grow in a way that seeks to honor him. Even if that costs me something, which at times it will. Even if that costs them something. And another area is our bodies. And that one is challenging to a lot of us, including me at times. But um, I want to be careful because there is this error in our world where we can idolize our bodies. And maybe that's the easier one to see. The person who constantly works out and is trying to, you know, to, out of sort of vanity and a desire for immortality, sort of worships their bodies. But at the same time, there is another error, which is that God gave us our bodies, and we're called to serve him in the world, and we need these things to do it, and so we should do our best to take care of our physical bodies and, you know, treat them in a way that serves and glorifies God. We're called to be stewards. All right. The second thing, then, that Genesis 1 teaches us is that God made everything, and he did it by his word. He did it by his word. Just listen to how creation gets described. So, for example, in verse 3, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Or verse 11, God said, let the land produce vegetation, and then it goes on to list the vegetation, and then, and it was so. 
And that, that is so familiar if you've been around the church, but that matter-of-fact language is meant to, like, blow your mind as you read it. Because it's not, it's not that God's giving, like, a mission statement. It, it's not like he says, you know, I'm going to create vegetables, and then he gets to work, you know, kind of slaving away, you know. It's simply that he says, vegetables, and boom, you know, the earth is covered in vegetation. It's not that he's setting expectations or letting us know what he's about to do. It's that somehow in speaking, the thing is done. There's a lot that that speaks to us of. First, that again speaks of God's power, right? That, that God doesn't create the way we do. It doesn't take work for God to create. He doesn't have to take, kind of, gather resources and develop skills. God simply, um, you know, God simply speaks the thing and it is. It also speaks, that particular idea of God creating by his word, speaks to us of the fact that we should remember that when we're talking about this, Jesus is involved in this process. One of the ways this theme gets picked up later in scripture is that Jesus is described as the word of God. So like in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is saying that, you know, this is Jesus, this word of God that's speaking and creating. But the truth that I would ask us to maybe this morning reflect on is that because God made everything by his word, that is meant to remind us not just that God is powerful or that Jesus is powerful, but that God's word in particular is powerful. There's this really interesting thing that happens, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to this church. He says this, He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Now there's two things that are striking there. The first is Paul's just stressing like what we are speaking as these apostles bearing witness to Jesus is the word of God, right? It's not just that we're some some dudes who have some thoughts about spirituality and we're writing some books and, you know, asking you to think about this. It's not the words of men. He's saying you recognized in what we said God's word, but then he says which is at work in you believers, which is to say that first he associates this word with this, this word of God, right? That's Jesus in John 1, that's God speaking creation back in Genesis chapter 1. But that word of God, which is that witness of the apostles, which is what we have now in scripture, that word is also at work and moving. Which means that when we think about God's word, and when we think about it preached, when we think about ourselves reading and studying it and memorizing and encountering it, we're talking about the very thing, working with the very same power that did that, let there be light, and there was light stuff from Genesis 1. And that should encourage us as we encounter God's word, immerse ourselves in it, read it, study it, come to know it, expecting that it has the power to change us. People are always on the hunt for the, like, the new spiritual trick, right? The, you know, give me, give me the, like, secret that I can discover to really be made more like Jesus. And, I mean, and that desire isn't all bad, but the truth is that, I mean, we are given what is most necessary for life and godliness by the Lord, and one of the core ways he does that is by giving us his word. We shouldn't neglect it. Now, I say that 
and I always feel a little torn because what I don't want you to hear in that is I'm saying that God's word is powerful. So like you just, you open it, you, you read it for two minutes, and it's going to be like lightning strikes from heaven and, you know, and the angels sing. I'm not saying it's powerful in that kind of obvious way. But what's true is that it is powerful in that it is effective. One of the, the things that I've really come to recognize over my life as a Christian is that even in those long, dry spells when I'm, you know, I'm sitting with God's word and reading it and seeking to meet with him, and I don't feel anything, right? <laughs> and I'm just like, what's going on? And, you know, the fireworks aren't going off. Even in those times, when I look back on them, I recognize that the Lord is powerfully working through me to grow and change me. The word is powerful and moves us. For God made everything. He made it by his word. And then the last thing this text teaches, he made it very good. God looks over creation and declares that it is very good. So, verse 4. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Each day ends with something like that, that God sees, looks at what he does, and sees and declares this is good. And then, in case you missed it, Genesis 1.31 which is after the creation of humanity, which we are going to talk about next week. But God sees everything that he has made, and he says it was very good. And so he makes something, says it's good, makes something else. And then to be clear, after he gets done with everything, he's like, yeah, now taken all together, it's excellent. It's very good. That should teach us a couple things as well. First of all, that should teach us that this world is very good. (laughs) Um... You know, this is such a hard thing, I feel like, sometimes to express. Because we all hear that and we're like, well, duh. But often as Christians, we fail to recognize it. I mean, like, there's two mistakes you can make. On the one hand, while this world is very good, to be clear, it's also broken by sin, right? Remember, we're in Genesis 1 at the beginning of the story. One of the things that's going to happen is that in Genesis 3, humanity rebels and things get messed up. And so I am not saying that every single thing in this world is very good, right? You know, earthquakes that destroy cities and cancer and death and temptation. There is stuff that's not good, um, you know, about, about the world as we inhabit it. But that doesn't change its underlying nature. And a lot of Christians have this idea that Christianity, um, that Christianity is like this spiritual religion about spiritual beings that doesn't think that creation is good. I mean, I see things like this, like memes like this, pop up on the internet um, and see Christians sharing them. This one says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. And there's two problems with that. One is that C.S. Lewis did not say that, right? (laughs) Which is pretty common for online quotes. That is not actually a C.S. Lewis quote. And the second is that that's not true, biblically. You are your body and your soul. And it's true when you die that your soul is united with Jesus and, you know, and kept by him. But the whole point of that is that then your body gets raised and they're united again. When God creates, I mean, what it means, human, you know, Adam is, right, a body that God breathes a soul into. Both the physical and the spiritual are a part of Christianity, and both of them are good and important. One of the reasons recognizing that matters is because our culture actually has a tendency to separate us from our bodies. And a lot of the struggles that we have in our culture have to do with that. So when we talk about a lot of the challenges we as Christians have with things like bioethics or sexuality and gender, 
what tends to happen in our culture is that there's this idea that, well, there's you, and you're not your body, right? Like, you know, you need to be free from your body. It shouldn't limit you. It shouldn't define you. Like, you are something separate from your physical body. And part of why the church has kind of been unable to really engage with that is because we're like, wait a minute, like, we think that too. Whereas scripture would respond by saying, no, like, you are a physical and a spiritual being, and the physical world is good, and you don't need to look at it as somehow bad or beneath you. Um, In fact, that's especially important for you to hear, because I think sometimes that spiritualizing thing can feed into ways that we, some of us, struggle with hating our bodies. And this would also speak back to that. Now again, we are broken by the fall, and there's some aspects of our physical life that are scarred by sin and messed up, right? And in those ways, it's okay to struggle. But I think a lot of us have this idea that, you know, we look at ourselves and we hate ourselves— or some part about ourselves that God made and declared very good, right? The culture does not get to define sort of what, what very goodness in a physical sense is. Like, God defined that and created you in a way that is good physically. So the physical world is very good. And then the last thing that this text should teach us is that the physical world can also show us God's goodness. It can show us God's goodness. We said earlier that one of the issues we sometimes have is that we chase these spiritual secrets and these hidden kind of things. And we said that God's word is one of the ways that he meets us and grows us and changes us. And that is true of God's word in scripture, but that's also true still in a real sense of God's word in creation. There are two ways that we can learn about God and grow in our understanding of him. Theologians call them general revelation and special revelation. General and special, which is to say general revelation is the way God reveals himself through creation, and then special revelation is the way that God reveals himself through the Bible and scripture and Jesus. And both of those types of revelation are actually beneficial to our spiritual life and growth. Now, I want to be careful in saying that because some people make this mistake where they think that because both are valid, general revelation is enough. Right? I've met people who are just like, man, I don't need like the Bible or the church or Christianity. I just, I just sit under the stars and I learn about the Lord. And the problem with that is this, right? It's, it's that like, like imagine that you, you never had the opportunity to know your parents and they leave you like this long letter and this photograph, right? They, they, you know, they leave you both of these things so that you can know about them and, and, and know who they are. Um, you would be a fool if you said, well, I've got the photograph. I'm good, I'm going to throw the letter away, right? That would make no sense. And that's essentially what you're doing when you say, well, general revelation is great, so I don't need to worry about special revelation, right? God has revealed himself through his word, and that's like that letter. But it is also true that you've missed something crucial if you read the letter, but you never bother to look at the photograph. There's something about seeing those people and encountering them in that way that speaks to you about who they are as well. And that is what creation is meant to be for us. We need God's written word to teach us about him and to learn about him, but there's also a real sense in which we need to encounter him in creation. And that is the application I'd like to leave you with this morning. If I could ask you to do just one thing this week as we reflect on the beginning of Genesis 1, here's what it is. It's this. It is take some time, to go be in God's very good creation 
and to give him praise and reflect on his goodness as you do. There's two parts of that. First, take some time to really just be in creation. And I don't buy that like, we live in this world, especially with technology, where I don't just, you can walk through the world and not be in it, right? <laughs> like, you can, for, I mean, pe- I, I think people, like, spend years, like, moving through the world and not being in it. So take the time to, like, notice stuff and, and look and see and feel and taste the, the creation around, well, depending, taste the creation around you. But, but really experience and look at that, and then take the time to let that turn you towards the Lord in praise. To say, God, you've made this. To recognize, to see the complexity and the beauty of this thing. To say, what is this teaching me about you? How am I seeing you moving in the world you have made? Because really one of the glorious truths of creation at the end of the day is that as we think about how do we know God, how do we learn about and encounter God, this world provides an endless series of opportunities for us to do it, right? I mean, if you take the time to do that practice that I'm asking you to do just once, right? You take the time to go out and look at a flower or watch some ants or, you know, look at your hand and all the, like, muscles and bones in it or whatever, and you take the time to really see that and then give praise to God from it, you know what you can then do in the next moment is you can find something else to to really see and give praise to God for. And the truth is that you could just go on like that forever, that this world is so full of God's goodness and glory in what he has made that there are endless opportunities for us to give him praise. One of the secrets of creation is that while it is not all we need, we need God's word and he moves powerfully through it, in what he has made, we can begin to encounter and learn about God and have our hearts lifted in praise to him. Creation calls us to know its creator and we are simply called to take the time and listen. That said, let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray now that you would be near to us, your creatures, even though we so often are distant in heart from you. Continue to speak to us through your word and remind us that it is powerful. Continue to show us yourself through your world and draw our hearts to praise. Pray all of this in your name, who powerfully by your word created all things. Amen.